0: Amen. Amen. Well, guys, grab hold of a Bible. Uh, Tonight we are in the Gospel of Luke, and so hopefully you got a Bible, and if so, make your way to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19 is where we are just continuing, just working on Wednesday nights, chapters at a time, Uh, many times whole chapters on Wednesday night, just trying to kind of get a a feel for the scriptures in that sense. Tonight, we're only going to do half a chapter, and it's a couple reasons. One of them is because Luke is a little bit longer, the chapters can be that way, so it's helpful in that sense to to kind of just zero in on it. The other part, just to give you kind of a heads up, the last half of the chapter begins with the triumphal entry that takes place on Palm Sunday, and that's Sunday. So we're actually going to finish this chapter on Sunday morning. We'll do the first half this week, and then we'll do the, the second half of the chapter next week, I mean, next on, on Sunday, so inviting you to be a part of that. But right now, longing that in the first part of this, God would meet us. And so again, hopefully you got a Bible, whether it's you know, paper or opening it electronically. You guys are online, hey, saying the same thing. Hey, join us fully. Bible with you following along so that in the moment you're both hearing from him, but also that God would speak to you by his word. And so we're asking for that right now, and we want to invite you to do that with us. So let's take one more moment and pray, and in this moment ask that God would help us to hear what he has for us, that he would give us ears to hear what he would say to us in the midst of this evening, that he would cause us to be those who are just met by him. So I'll lead you in that and invite you to pray as well. Father, right now we come and just ask that you would meet us here. And think about how you describe it there in the book of Revelation, Jesus, that to him who has ears to hear, let him hear. What the Spirit would say to his church and and to the churches. God, I'm asking that that would be us this evening, that you would find us with ears to hear. Lord, where there's any lack of that, would you by just power and mercy, would you touch us? Would you strengthen us? Would you help us even at this moment, just both physically and emotionally and spiritually, to be in a receptive place? And Lord, in your favor, would you speak to us? Through your word, by your spirit, would you cause us to hear what you're wanting to say to us, each and every one of us? Help, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. Hey, I could say that here this evening, and I know for some of you, that just brings in memories, like Sunday school or VBS. Hey, for me, I got to be honest, it's not so much there. I didn't grow up in the church, and so I didn't learn it until we, we had kids, and my wife was singing it to our kids, like, hey, those are pretty cool, you know, kind of hearing these songs and kind of, you know, walking through that. But if you've heard it, then you know this story that we begin with this evening is, is an amazing one. It's a story of a man named Zacchaeus. But it's a story that's more than just an account. It's one that God tells us as an example. One that he holds out of what he would do in people's lives. That he tells us that he is one who, who comes to rescue people. And this is one that gives us a window to see that. So I want you to see that with me as we begin. In Luke 19, begin with me there in verse 1. It says, then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, because he was of short stature." That's probably a good place for us to begin. We think about just kind of gazing into the story and Jesus is traveling, making his way through Jerusalem, up through Jericho, not an uncommon route, but also not impossible that just, you know, by the way that God brought him, brought him very specifically to come see this man. And we get a quickest glimpse into this man, not enough to know all that's there, but it's worth just seeing this man who's, who's going to become someone that God saves. And we see him, and we'll just kind of begin by understanding him as the sinner. You probably catch this, but let's just think it through for a moment. It tells us that he is a chief tax collector. It's hard to put into words how offensive, how despicable, how horrible such a description was. To say that in a Jewish culture, to say that someone was a tax collector, a chief tax collector, was the worst of the worst. Again, it's probably hard for you to fully conceive of, but think it through with me just for a moment. Rome is conquered. Rome has conquered Israel at this point in time. They're controlling and they're raising taxes. And they came up with a, not an uncommon, but a, a pretty effective means of doing that. They employed, caused Jews to, to be raised up to be tax collectors, to inflict taxes on their own people. But they did so in a way that gave them a little bit of a free reign so that they could collect more than they had to turn into Rome. They just had to make sure they collected enough it created corruption. It created a a place where tax collectors were known as people who took advantage of people, who kind of used their insight as Jews into the Jewish world and became those who took advantage of people, took advantage of situations. So for a Jew to look at a tax collector, it was somebody not only who inflicted major pain on them financially, but was a traitor someone who betrayed everything that they were, who kind of gave themselves over to the enemy and now became one who is using their inside knowledge against them. So for a Jew, a tax collector, it was, it was like the lowest of the lows. It was like the worst possible kind of person that you can imagine, description that you could see there. Zacchaeus, he's not just a tax collector, he's the chief tax collector. How he got that place is, again, we don't know. I don't know if he just did a really good job and kind of was promoted so that now he has other tax collectors under him. We don't know how it worked, but it definitely moved him into this realm of life that was just incredibly offensive, incredibly against everything that's there, and yet here he is. Now, out of that, it's not surprising. It kind of works into it, but still it tells us in the text he was rich. I mean, it worked well for him. He had taken advantage, and again, he was rich off the backs of his own people, off of, of, of abusing and misusing all that's there, probably all that could ever go along with that in a kind of Roman world coming alongside that, and you're just watching this man. Add to that, even as we kind of said it from the uh, Sunday school hit, just rhyme, he was a short man. I mean, that's what he tells us. He just ends the, you know there, in in verse 3, it says he was of short stature. Like, he was just he was small. Now, whether that had huge bearing into his life or not, that's debatable. It's certainly going to go bearing into how he, how he moves into this, but it certainly finds him in this space, this space of him being someone who's outside of God's work, who is, to say it in a simple way, a sinner. Now, I suppose that probably makes sense, but I find myself just wanting to explore it with you just for a moment because sometimes, maybe not you, maybe it's other people, we, we love the gospel. We love that God rescues people. We love that He can do that. But sometimes we begin to frame it almost entirely in kind of the you know thinking of of, of just the lowest people who hit kind of that that rock bottom who whose lives kind of bottom out in you know kind of just horrendous ways where we think about just you know people who find themselves kind of you know as, as Jesus would talk about them, the the guiding up in pig slop and and so you think about that and sometimes we think about lives that when we think about people being lost, we, th- we, we tend to think about, hey, you know, yeah, these are people who are, you know, totally wrecked their lives, drug, drug addicts, you know, drunkards, and that's certainly true, and I just want to tell you, hey, God rescues people. I mean, He rescues people, and that's incredibly delightful, but you got to understand, this man looks like anything like that, up that, just anything different than this. He's got everything that the world says is there. He's rich. He's rich. He's powerful, He's a man who's moving, at least in the Roman circles, probably really, really well. I mean, he has what the life says is there, but, he is, but he's a man who's outside of that. He's a man who's, who's broken, and he's a man who's, who's needing that, and there's something powerful about seeing that, seeing just the, the way that this is and, and the things that are there. Add to that. Because of all of that, he probably seemed like one of the most unlikely candidates, you know, that as you thought about people and like, who's going to get saved and who's God going to rescue, had you been there in Jericho, you probably would have both, you know, Zacchaeus, he's, he's a chief tax collector. I mean, he is like the worst of the worst. He's betrayer number one. He's, he's the one that's, you know, certainly gone against everything that is our culture and everything that is right, and certainly he was. But God's going to do an incredible work. He's going to do a rescuing work that is, is worthy of us watching. Now, somewhere in the midst of this, he becomes a seeker. He becomes somebody who's interested in Jesus. And again, I just like the way it says it, and so I just read it with you again. It just tells us in verse 2, now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich, and he sought to see who Jesus was. Somewhere along the way, he, he found this. He found himself looking and seeking and, and finding himself just hearing that Jesus was passing by, but certainly there was so much more. That, to, to watch what's going to happen in this encounter draws us to a place of seeing, you know, that his life was somehow drawn to Jesus, and I just find myself asking questions. Like, I wonder how that happened. I mean, how did this man who was kind of culturally ostracized in some ways find himself hearing about Jesus, hearing about what's there. I mean, there was no sense of being able to hop on YouTube and kind of watch on a kind of an outside place and, and, and seeing it in a way that, you know, nobody else was there. But I wonder, did he, did he hear in crowds? Did he, you know, hear in some of the people that he was, you know, trying to inflict harm on or, 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 or steal from? What was it? Was it accounts that Jesus spoke? Was it maybe even Matthew? Oh, some of you know Matthew, one of Jesus' 12, he was a tax collector that God rescued. Certainly that created an atmosphere, though it was in a different city. Certainly even that kind of played into it. all these things and more somehow had this man who essentially had everything that seemed like life could have wanted for him, but he hears about Jesus and, and, he, and he wants to see him. He, he wants to see what's there. He, he climbs this place. He finds himself there. But it tells us, but he couldn't see him. I mean, though the crowds are kind of passing by, he couldn't see him because of the crowd, because he was of short stature. I mean, couldn't see over the crowd, couldn't see what's happening. So he does this crazy thing. Verse 4, so he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. It's fun to imagine it for a moment. Here's this man who is incredibly powerful who has money, probably has people, can do what he wants. But at this moment, he wants to get into this crowd, and, and he can't. I mean, both his short stature, but probably also just not people giving him that kind of respect. He makes this crazy choice of picking the route that Jesus is going to go on and goes and climbs a tree, which I don't know. I mean, that, that, that just seems kind of crazy. I mean, you, you think of a, of a child climbing a tree, you think of somebody doing, but he, he climbs this tree so, that, so he can see so he could be a part of this, and yet I find myself wondering, and I don't want to press too hard, and I don't want to, you know, make assumptions that are not clear in the text, but I find myself wondering if it also just shows his kind of place of doing that, his place of almost seeing without being seen. And it's a weird space where that find, finds itself, when someone who, who's interested in, and kind of interested in Jesus, and yet almost wanting to see what's happening without being seen. Again, we live in a different world. It doesn't work that way today. The funny things that might be happening right now. Oh, it's probably, if so, it's not probably happening in this room. It's probably how it's been online. It could be somebody right now that it's you that you just happen to be like, hey, I can, I can tune in and nobody has to know that it's me, that I'm actually tuning in, that nobody has to, to see this. And funny thing, it may even be you that seems to have so much in this world, seems to have, you know, everybody would think you have what everybody else wants, whether it be money or power. And yet here he is just longing. I mean, just, just to see it. And I don't know what he was just, just looking on, perhaps just thinking, hey, as he sat there and as he wanted to see this feeling like, hey, I could never be, that would never work for me or that would never be a place that I could be accepted or, or, or be recognized. And yet that's part of this incredible account it is what God is doing. This man who finds himself as this seeker, this one who is there, kind of in that place of, of watching this and God's gonna do an incredible work. Now, just for space, I'm going to slide those two up to the top there just so we have a couple bit of room there because we're going to watch him get saved. We're going to watch what God does, and it does so in an incredible way. It tells us in verse 5, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. I love just trying to imagine this. And again, inviting you to do the same. I mean, it's a crowd. It's moving. It's moving down the street. Zacchaeus can't get through the crowd, so he climbs this tree just to watch him go by. Maybe at that moment, still just considering himself on the outside looking in and trying to figure out what's happening. And as Jesus walks by this crowd, he just stops. Now, again, I just, in my mind, I'm just trying to imagine Everybody's like, everybody stops, like, okay, Jesus stops, like, we're stopping, why are we stopping? Okay, whole crowd stops, and they're waiting, waiting for him to to say something or do something, and he just looks up and sees this man, you know, sees Zacchaeus there in the tree, and this man who was kind of present but hidden, you know, seeing but not seen, and Jesus sees him, and and, and he just calls him, And, and he just tells him, he calls him by name. He tells us there again, he says, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. I can't help but feel just an amazing kind of just thinking through that. I think of what Jesus talks about when he talks about it in John 10. And, and there he just tells us, you know, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and, and he leads them out. Just this place where Jesus says, I call my sheep by name. There is a sense of being known by him, and he knows. That's true for Zacchaeus. That's true for us. But what an incredible moment. Maybe you understand. Maybe you try to get where I'm trying to press in on this, this moment where Zacchaeus is in this place of seeing but not being seen, on the outside, looking in. And then Jesus just push through that, him just to push through that in such a way that causes a, just him to not only be present, but to be seen, to know at this moment that he's not just there, but Jesus sees him and he doesn't just sees him. He knows him. I mean, he calls him by name and says, Zacchaeus, I, I see you. I see you right there. I see what's there. And he says, hey, I want to come over to your house. It says, you know, Jesus, come down. Jesus, Z- 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 Zacchaeus, come down. Make haste, come down. For today, I must stay at your house. In the Jewish culture, to have that kind of fellowship to have a space of, of people inviting and allow you in was a place of acceptance and and a place of being received and so for Jesus to even state this is amazing to say to him that he's longing for this and inviting him into this becomes this just place that's all by itself amazing and yet to him he says, "Hey, I want to come into your home i want to I want to come in and, and stay with you and and come into that place and yet it's the exact picture of what God does in us. I mean, he, inv- he calls us by name and longs to enter into our home, our life, if you will, our our space in this place, and he's longing for this. Now, Zacchaeus is incredibly excited. I mean, he hears this, and his response to it is worth just noting. So he made haste, verse 6, and came down and received him joyfully. That moment from being... Unseen but seeing, to now being just known. I mean, he is so excited. So excited to move into this. He he moves into this place of inviting Jesus to, to enter into this and be a part of this. And as Jesus does that, verse 5, it says, When Jesus came to the place, you know, sorry, you know, he invites him to that. And sorry, in verse 6, so he made haste, came down, and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor, and I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation. I restore fourfold. Zacchaeus' response to this is this amazing place, this place a man who had so much, he said, I'm going to give half of it away right now. This this thing that was probably his God before this, this place that money was there, and he says, I'm going to give it half of it away, and then if I have done wrong, if I have taken advantage of people, I want to restore that fourfold. I want to give back in a way that not doesn't just restore what I've taken, but blesses. And this incredible response that shows his brokenness, both over what he's done and where he's responded and now just kind of turning entirely away from that. And Jesus just tells us exactly what happened. He just looks and said to him in verse 90, Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house. Because he also is a son of Abraham. Wow. I just want you to see it. I just want you to watch what's happening here as this man who was this in this incredible space of his life being radically turned around and wonderfully turned around. And Jesus just inviting and says, this is what I've done today. Today, this man is rescued. Today, this man who was far off is now brought near. Now, it's an interesting thing that Jesus does. And it really probably ties into some of what we've tried to think about tonight. Because as Jesus is explaining this, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he also is the son of Abraham. That's an interesting insertion, is it not? I mean, just a place he says, okay, this this man is now, salvation is visited here because he's a son of Abraham. This probably has a number of layers. Once more, there is a sense that this man has been an outcast. He's been a Jew who has probably been rejected by all of his fellow Jews. And Jesus recognizes him as like, hey, you are, you're a son of Abraham. Not just though, in the descendants, not just in the family, but probably more, even what Paul talks about in Romans four that it 's through the faith of Abraham it's, he says you know it 's not everybody who is of the descendants of a Jew who's a Jew, but those who have faith in jesus and he says this man he 's a true one I mean, this is this amazing place, but it 's radical. it is so incredibly radical to to watch this man who found himself in this place of being outside of this, now finding himself, you know, being rescued, and as Jesus tells us this, he can can use and says it this way, just reading again from verse 9, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost that Zacchaeus, he becomes this one who's not only saved, but since I'm using S's, and again, for whatever reason, I just did it tonight, I don't know why, we'll call him a specimen. It's probably not the greatest example, but we'll say he's a great example. He's an example of people that God saves. That he says, here's what I do. This is the kind of thing I do. That Jesus says, this is, this is an example of how I come to seek and to save that is, which is lost. So we're seeing a place here, not only is that he rescued, not only is he, you know, that one who is rescued, but we're understanding that he's meant to be something more for us, that Jesus is saying, he's trying to hold it out to you and I as a way of saying, hey, this is the kind of thing God does. Now, I don't know what you do with that, but I just want to press just for a second and say again, for some of us, there just needs to be a rewriting of the way that we see it that sometimes, again, we just make sure that we, we look and think, hey, God can rescue people. He can rescue broken people. He can rescue, you know, poor people. He can rescue rich people. He can rescue people who are in any space of that, and He can be the one that can bring those who are on the outside in, some who we would even consider so far gone, some who we kind of the very betrayers of everything that we could have imagined and then to watch God save, and it's just this amazing reality, a a place of saying, this is what God does, and I love that He does it, and so part of us is to draw us into a heart of longing for that, enjoying in that, but before I go past it, I'm just going to say it again. It's not impossible that that's somebody right here. Again, maybe in this room, maybe online, maybe in the overflow, and it's such an interesting thing because, again, it doesn't fit sometimes the normative you know, kind of scenario of what we think. You, you, you find yourself, again, thinking you have everything. You have the house. You have the car. You have the job. You, you have all the things that other people think they want. And from the outside, you, you find yourself thinking people want what you have, but you're on the outside looking in. You're the one who's seeing but not seeing. And I love that this is a picture of what God would do, that he would say, hey, to this you, I, I could invite myself in and, and radically change your life bring you so that your life becomes a part of that. And if that's you this evening, I just want to say, hey, it would be a great story and and a great account that this is exactly what God does, that He's one who rescues people. And if you're on the outside looking in, then we invite you in. If you're on the outside observing and thinking that there's no chance that you would be welcomed in, then we want to tell you that's not true. That God is one who would rescue and redeem and bring those from who are the farthest out in. And we love that he does that and we long that he continues to do that. Wow. Great story, great account just to watch Jesus do this, to watch that he saves and pray that he does so again. Well, now we move. We're here in, in John, I'm sorry, in Luke 19, and, and we watch the beginning of a life being saved. And then Jesus turns us to an entirely other side of it. And it's almost as if we move to the other end of the spectrum. Not to the beginning of a spiritual life, but to that moment that we stand before Him, that moment that we're going to see Him. Now He lets us know a little bit about it. So let's preface it and kind of just read a couple of things, and we'll try to see if we can kind of glean some some truths here for us this evening. It says now, as they heard these things, He spoke another parable because He was near Jerusalem, and because they thought that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So he's now just in this, this crowd. The crowd's there. They've watched Zacchaeus get saved. They've watched this whole thing, but they're making their way to Jerusalem. And so he begins to share with them this parable, a parable of meanness. But again, he lets us know why. He says they, because they think that the kingdom of God is about to come, that they're living in light like it could happen right now. And there is a sense that we are to live that way. But he also knows there is a a way of patience and a longing for this and a place that he's going to call us to say, okay, there's a way to live until that moment, and he he wants to communicate that. They thought it would happen immediately, and so it says in verse 12, therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. There's a whole bunch that's there, but I'm just going to leave it in that simple way he begins to tell the parable. There's this man, this nobleman, who's going to leave and receive a kingdom and return, and much that would be behind that had we time to just dive into that. It's a pretty good, accurate picture of even Christ, of, of His dying on the cross, rising, going to heaven, waiting till He receives the kingdom, till, till all that the Father is going to give Him is given to Him and returns. But for the simplicity's sake, He is going to be this picture of a story of this man who just he's leaving and he's going to leave his servants in charge. Now, quick FYI for you Bible students, there's a similar parable called the parable of the talents, and they have a lot of similarities, but some significant differences. Parable of the talents in Matthew 25 and Kind of a picture where Jesus talks about the different ways that would do that. And for you guys who could want to take time later, you might even want to think, okay, what are the differences? I mean, some of the lessons that flow out of these, they have a similar application, but for some also very different ones. Tonight, we want to see what, what is the one that the story or the account of the mina has for us. Quick FYI, you probably read Mina and you don't actually kind of think through, hey, I know what that is. A Mina, it's about 100 days wages. In fact, I'll put a little graphic up on the screen. You probably won't be able to see it. It's hard to kind of make that out at times in a difference. But just thinking of the currency and the, the weights that are found in scriptures, one of them that's familiar to some is the denarius, which is the Roman or the way of looking at it that was about a day's wage the drachma which is the greek one is also the same they both find themselves saying hey this is what somebody makes in one day this is a, a single whose wages would be a denarius and so jesus would would use that and talk about it sometimes that way a mina is a hundred of those a mina is a hundred days wages uh, kind of finding itself in the midst of that of being a, a part of that a talent is 60 minas or about 20 wages 20 years wages and kind of just putting those in perspective again the one in matthew 25 is a talent, but this one's a mina. It's about a hundred days' wages, about a, about a you know four months. If you want to think about it that way, kind of just looking at this whole place, and he's going to talk about it and apply it that way. So, let's see what he says. He speaks about it this way. So he pictures this nobleman who who you know is leaving far far country. He's going to re- return. He's going to go receive a kingdom and return. So verse thirteen. So he called ten of his servants, delivering to them ten minas, and he said to them do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man reign over us. Okay. Lessons. Let me just give you five lessons that find itself in this parable that are worth your consideration. Lesson number one is just that first part of it that Jesus just speaks kind of from this nobleman's perspective to his servants. Hey, do business till I come some translations say, occupy till I come, or be faithful till I come. That has to be part of the lesson because Jesus has already told us, hey, here's a group of people that are thinking the kingdom of God is going to come at any moment, and he's going to tell them, hey, be faithful. Be faithful till I come. Be about my business till I come. Be faithful in doing what you ought to be doing until that last day the challenge to this and everything that would flow out of this would call us to such a faithfulness. Now, similarly so, Parable of the Talents has a similar application, a call to take what God has entrusted to us and be faithful with us. Be faithful through all that would be there. With a part of that, there is a place where that's going to have an accounting. Yeah, he gives it to us in verse 15. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he commanded these servants to whom he had given the money And he called to him that he might know how much every man gained by his trading. Now, we're going to watch through as he begins to give this accounting. But again, it's just worth noting. Hey, there is a day of account. There is a day of giving an account of our lives. There's a day that's coming. Now, I hope you understand that that's true. There's not anybody in this room. There's not anybody hearing me online right now that there's not a day That you're going to give an account for your life. Where you give that account is different. If you don't know Jesus, that day is going to be at the great white throne judgment of the Father, where everything you are is going to be judged and brought before Him and your sin laid out, and that's going to be that place where your life has an accounting of your soul. If you know Jesus, it's at the great white throne judgment. I mean, it's so not, not at the great white throne judgment. It's at the Bema Seat of Christ, at this place where we're going to go before Jesus, but it's still going to be an accounting. It's going to be a place where you're going to be asked, so what'd you do with your life? How did you handle that space that you've been given? How did you, you, you handle that, that, that place that you've been entrusted till Jesus comes back? Now, that all by itself is, is just the, the large part of this story. The large part of this is this place, hey, we, this, this time that we have here, it's not just free time. It's not just play time. It's not just a place of just kind of coasting. There's a place of saying, hey, we're going to give an account of what we've done with our lives. We're going to give an account of what he's put into us. Now, again, for you Bible students, the, the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, there's three servants. Here, there's actually ten. There's actually ten servants. He has ten servants. He gives to each of them a mina. In the parable of the talents, he gives differing weights, and it's a picture of of how God gives differing gifts and talents in our lives. These ones, it's all the same. They've all been entrusted with something, and and nobody's given more. Nobody's given in that sense less in that sense. He says, "You've been given this, and these ten servants are entrusted with this, and and now they have this opportunity to come before Jesus." to come before him and answer, well, what did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with that which was entrusted to your life? We do have three accounts, three of those who in this story do get to respond to it, and so he comes to the first. Verse 16, then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned 10 minas. Pretty crazy story. It's like, you gave me one, I got 10. Uh, you gave me, yeah, I had one, and I've, I've, I've taken what you've entrusted to my life, and I've, I've done with it, and I've, I've, I've done, you know, this much that basically has a tenfold investment, you know, return to this whole thing. And so he responds to him, verse six, 17, he said, well done, good and faithful servant. Because you were faithful and very little, you have authority over 10 cities. Similarly, we get another one who comes, and he says in verse 19. I'm sorry, this in verse 18, the second one came saying, Master, your Mina has earned five Minas. Like you give me one, I got I got five. I, I earned five more. I, I have a fivefold and just return to this whole thing. And Jesus says to him, likewise, he said to him, You also shall be over five cities. Okay what do we do with this? I mean, what's what's the the point of this? Again, I I wish we had lots of time where we could go and compare the story of the talents and the meanest. The talents, it's an interesting one because it kind of shows the the story of equal faithfulness deserves equal reward. That both the one who had five talents and the one who had, 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 you know, just last, they they both kind of have the same response to this, but this has a different response. This has a response that their faithfulness earns for them just a heavenly reward, earns for them just this response from God, or I'll just say it this way again, faithfulness here, well, it does equal authority, it does equal responsibility, it does equal blessing there. That probably makes sense, but we need to just explore it for a quick moment. Can I just be honest with you? I don't fully understand this. I don't I mean to think I mean I could be I don't understand heaven. I mean how is it going to be to be in a world where there's no more pain, there's no more suffering and there's and there's there's, there's no more curse. I mean just the concept of how beautiful that's going to be boggles my imagination. None of the curse, none of the th- the problems of the world play into this, but there is a sense that God is simply telling us that what you do with your life it's earning for us what the Bible would talk about as rewards as Him, you know, just blessing us there, or this place here, which is authority, which He says, okay, that whatever you are faithful with here, you're going to have authority there. You're going to have authority over 10 cities. You're going to have authority over over five cities. And I just want to tell you, it's an incredible promise. Here's what I know. For somebody here this evening, this doesn't actually work for you. I mean, for you, you're like, I don't know if I'm interested. I, I, I feel almost guilty. I feel like, you know, that that sounds, you know, like I'm taking advantage or that I need something other than just well done, good and faithful servant, or that I'm, I'm looking for something that I would do it for some ulterior motive. And I just want to say in a very simple way, hey, appreciate your heart, you're wrong. Because this is Jesus. If he's wanting to give you something, it's good. And it isn't about you being esteemed above other people. It isn't about comparison. It isn't about, um, you know, pride or any of those things. This is about both his honor and his blessing. And the Bible's just very clear that this is true, that our faithfulness here is somehow determining some of what heaven's going to look like for us. And here it seems to say not so much, hey, I'm going to be richer and I'm going to have a bigger house than you, but I'll have more responsibility. I'll have more more place to be both useful and honoring and pleasing to him. And I don't know if you know that. I mean, I know that for some Christians, it's like, hey, I know Jesus, and I get in the door. That's really all that matters. I mean, like, as long as I'm saved, that's really all that matters. Hey, you know, in some ways, there's true. But sometimes we actually lose sight of of your faithfulness in this entering time actually is determining some of what that's going to look like for you. Now, there's not anybody who's going to be sad to be in heaven. But there is something about saying, "Hey, our faithfulness here does have a bearing on what that's going to look like." Well, with that, trying to figure it out, let's think through this other one, this third servant that comes through him, comes before him. Another came, verse twenty, saying, "Master, here is your mina. I have kept put it away in a handkerchief, for I feared you, because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit, and reap where you did not sow." And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you. Oh, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has 10 minas. But they said to him, but master, he has 10 minas. He said to him, but I said to everyone who has will be given and from him who does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. Well, if faithfulness earns us just both responsibility, authority, earns us blessing there, unfaithfulness robs us. Unfaithfulness here robs us of joy there. So here we have this one, and he's there, and he's like, man, I didn't, I, I had, you know, I know you gave it to me. I did nothing with it. I mean, I just, I didn't do anything with it. I didn't want to mess it up. I didn't want to do anything wrong, but I, here it is. You can have back what you've entrusted to me. And Jesus said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, speak your words back to you. You said that, and, and that's exactly how you're going to be dealt with. Let's understand what he just said. He's not saying that this man lost his salvation. He's not saying that this man isn't going to be in heaven. In fact, no, we know this. The Bible says there are people who are going to fall exactly into this category, people who have wasted their earthly life. I think about it when Paul's talking about it in Corinthians, and he's kind of picturing it as how we serve in our lives. And he says, you know, if everyone's wor- if one's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet, as so, th- yet so as through fire. He says, you know, all of us can gonna have our lives. He says, you know, you're, you're building with your life, whether it's, you know, wood, hay, or stubble, or gold, precious stones. And he says, whatever you've taken that God's given to you, and you've put it back into life, if you've wasted your life, there's this moment that you're gonna stand before Jesus and it's all gonna be burned away. Like everything you did foolish, everything you wasted your life. And Paul says, it's, it's in one sense, it's like your life is gonna be there. And once that's all burned away, whatever you have left is what you get to offer Jesus. Whatever you have left is what you get to say, Lord, I did this, I lived for you, I lived, you know, for your honor, for your glory, I tried to serve you. And he says, that's what you're gonna be able to give them. And what Paul says is is that some people they're gonna stand there with their life and the fire's gonna burn through and it's gonna be like, it's all gone. Like there's nothing there. I didn't do anything good. I never, I never invested my life into eternity. I didn't serve, I didn't represent Jesus. And Paul says, they're still saved. I mean, they still get to come in, but their whole life, it's as though they made it through the fire. They're not, they, they lose everything. Well, that's the same story that Jesus is here telling. Here's this servant who did nothing with their life, did nothing with everything that's there. They, they come back before the Lord and, and he's there and they're like, he's like, take it away from him. You take see, and give it to the man who is very faithful. Give that blessing of responsibility. Give that blessing of reward to him because in your unfaithfulness, you, you lose all of that. And so the simple lesson in that sense is drawing us to that place of saying, hey, that's true. The way we live our life is going to affect our eternity, even within the kingdom of God, even for those who know him. Now, interesting in the story, it's not the end of it. He tells us in verse 27, he says, but bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. And he gives us this picture. Again, it kind of had this whole place when the nobleman was there. And it goes back to verse 14, the citizens that said they hated him. And they said, we don't want him. We don't want him to reign over us. He says, okay. Well, on this day, you who rejected me, well, those are gonna be the ones who are gonna die. And that's actually exactly what is going to happen when Jesus comes back and judgment's taking place. All those who didn't want Jesus in that moment are there. And so you could kind of think about it this way. In some ways, there's only three types of people that are found in this parable, three types of people that are living life today, those who are faithful Christians, those who are unfaithful Christians, and those who are enemies. That right now we're in this space where Jesus has left, he's coming back, and and he says, here's the the place that, you know, in this intervening time, he's going to find people in one of three categories, in one of three spaces uh, of life. Now, it's probably clear where we're going with this, but let me just ask you, so which one is you? I mean, where, where do you find yourself this evening? Now, it's very clear where I want you to be and where Jesus would want you to be. Into that place of saying, God, I, I'm seeking to be faithful. Now, let's just be clear. That's not, there's not any one of us is like, man, 100%. Like I've done, I've never failed at anything that God asked me to do. That's not true. But there is a place of saying, you want, do you want your life to, to be even valued eternally? Then use the time that you have for him. Occupy till he comes. Do business till he comes. Like, Lord, whatever that looks like. Well, I, I want to be faithful. I want to be faithful with my time. I want to be ta- faithful with my talents. I want to be faithful with my abilities. There ought to be a way that you're saying, I want to do that till he comes. And, and part of the reason is because you know you're going to stand before him. And, and that, that to be able to say, you know, God, I did this for you. Like, you gave me this earthly life, and I invested it here here's what I tried to do for you. Here's how, what I, and, and you want to have something in that day. I hope that's you. I hope you find yourself in that place of, of faithfulness. And again, some are going to be very, very faithful. And they're going to be like, hey, there's that one that had, you know, you, you had one Mina and you earned 10. Well done. And, and, and you're going to have a tenfold blessing in that. Some be like, well, I didn't do 10, but I did do five. So then, you'll, then you'll get that five that will be the place of reward, and, and you want that type of faithfulness. You want to be in that category, that place of being well done. How miserable it would be to be in the place of being this unfaithful servant, where the Jesus said, you wicked servant, like you wasted your life. You wasted the whole thing. I mean, really? That's, that's what you thought life was about, was just you coasting and kind of cruise. That's not life. You want to be one that says, God, I, I, I've been faithful with what you've asked me to do. So I definitely am calling you away from unfaithfulness, calling you away from a life that would be you know, losing then of just that honor and reward to him. But the scariest of all is to be his enemy, to be in that place where he says, when I come back, those who've rejected me in my reign, it's not just, hey, you lose something, you lose everything that hell's real, and that horrendous reality becomes there. And so that's a good place for us then to kind of begin to pull this to a close this evening. We think about this story that's begun here of the Zacchaeus and thinking of how God rescues, and then this parable of the meanest, and some of where it, it draws in together. And I'm just saying, wherever this has met you, there is a longing that you would be there. Again, if it's a rescue that God would rescue your life and draw you to that, that would be amazing. If it's a place out of this of saying, God, I want to live in light of that. I want to live in, in faithfulness. That God would draw you to that. That there would be a space where that would be you. And again, I'm just inviting you to it. I mean, there's a, a place of saying, hey, I want to be one that responds to this in a way that he'd have me to. So let's close our Bibles, notebooks, whatever it is we have open. And let's just take a moment. We'll just ask God for this. Wherever he has met you tonight, just longing that he would take his truth and draw your life to be one who in that day, when Jesus comes back, will hear, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray for that. God, I thank you that you rescue people. The reality is that for those of us who know you this evening, that's what you did for us. You knew us by name. You drew us to you. You invited. You, you, you brought you just into our life, into our world, your presence, and that changes everything. God, thank you that you save people. Thank you for Zacchaeus. Thank you for the example that you give us. And Lord, do it again. Lord, do it again. If there's somebody even now in this room or online who's on the outside looking in, do it again. Invite them in, Lord. Bring them in. Just enter into their life and bring salvation into their home. God, do it again. God, I thank you for that because it's such a scary thing for those who would reject that, who would be your enemy now and find themselves standing in judgment before you when you come back. God, rescue again. But God, as you've done that for so many of us, I think about this parable of the minas and the simple challenge that in some ways raises tons of questions and trying to figure out how that works and why. But there's no doubt about it. You're calling us to faithfulness. You're calling us to live our lives Recognizing that there's a day that we're going to give an accounting for our lives, that we're going to stand before you. I so want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I so don't want to hear, you wicked servant. God, would you teach us? Would you right now forgive us and cleanse us where we have been unfaithful? And then help us to be faithful. Lord, draw us to be those who seek to live for you and and seek to say, God, it's, it's you that I want to please and I want to be one who, when I stand before you and give that accounting, have something to give to you and honor you with, knowing that that's gonna affect even how eternity works for us. And I don't really totally understand that, but I know it's gonna be good. I know what you have for me is good. It's huge. I want everything you have for me, now and eternally. So Lord, teach us to be faithful. I ask for that for me and for all of us this evening and ask that you just take our lives and build them on you. We ask for it now in Jesus' name, amen.